0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. Today, my guest is Andrew Adams, who is the director of the Justice Department's new Klepto Capture Task Force. He'll be discussing his efforts to pursue Russian oligarchs and their hidden wealth as part of US efforts to sanction Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, for his invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Adams, welcome to Washington Live. So let me begin uh, with the new sanctions uh, that were announced yesterday by the Biden administration that target President Putin's adult children, as well as the country's two largest banks, let me ask you uh, to briefly summarize what we know about the wealth of Putin's children.
0: Sure. So I won't get into specifics of particular particular investigations while we're talking today. But what I I can say at a high level is family members, um, uh, children, spouses, ex-spouses in some instances, cousins are one of the the means by which um, People under the, the Putin regime, the people who are listed in uh, the OFAC sanctions as uh, specially designated nationals, have historically obscured their wealth and, and hidden wealth in plain sight. Uh, so that's one of the uh, one of the goals behind the most recent change.
1: Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident, made a scathing video before he was arrested last year about Putin's hidden wealth, but talked about his children, his family. I, I just am curious whether your investigators uh, looked at that and used any of Navalny's research as you did your own investigation.
0: So Navalny, other people uh, like Mr. Navalny, um, uh, other organizations that that undertake to do uh, intensive research are certainly a, a tool that we can use and, and have used uh, for, for leads and for developing cases under the ambit of this task force, as well as, uh, as, as, well as across the department, generally. Um, the kinds of information that are available uh, to the people in his position um, tend, to, tend to be things on open source, uh, that is, things that it, a person who knows where to look can find them uh, on the public record um synthesizing that is extremely valuable uh and the the work that he and his his supporters and his organization um and organizations like it do to make that synthesis a reality is and and certainly can be invaluable it's the same kind of analysis and the same kind of effort that investigators analysts uh agents across the the united states government across our partners uh, uh, overseas, their governments, undertake as well uh, and undertake with, uh, in many cases, um, additional tools that that go beyond and sometimes far beyond uh, what you can find on open source material.
1: So I wanna ask you a question that I think many of us wonder about every time new sanctions are imposed uh, against Russia. And that is why the previous set of sanctions wasn't more effective. Uh, The initial round of financial sanctions that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine was described as crippling, and it certainly looked to be uh, uh, at a level that we'd never seen before. And yet, the Russians seem to have adapted in many ways. The ruble uh, stabilized after initially getting pounded. Could you speak a little bit to the the question of uh, whether there are loopholes that, the Russians are using to evade sanctions and whether those loopholes now are being closed.
0: Certainly, so uh, I'm not a, an economist for, for sure. I think that there is some uh, some reporting and some understanding that the bounce in the ruble is among the more superficial sorts of economic fixes that the Kremlin can undertake uh, in response to what is otherwise as you say, a, a crippling series and really unprecedentedly broad series of uh, of economic sanctions on a systematic level. Um, that said, um, it it is absolutely expected um, that the targets of those sanctions, that the Kremlin itself will undertake efforts to evade the sanctions, uh, as you say, to adapt to them and to look for areas of leakage in in that sanctions regime. In large part, the the reason for the the foundation of this task force is to plug the leaks uh, and to to look for um, areas in the economy, um, both the the legitimate normal financial economy where um, uh, people acting in good faith may be exploited by uh, money launderers and sanction evaders um, to look for those those areas of exploitation and to look in the illicit economy uh, and to be looking on the black market and um, and in darker parts of the financial system where uh, those possibilities may exist.
1: One of the more dramatic moments in this effort to go after the oligarchs came on Monday when the U.S. government uh, seized, worked with Spain to seize uh, a 255 foot yacht uh, in Spain owned by an oligarch named Victor Wexelberg uh, who has said to have close ties to President Putin tell us a little bit about the seizure of the yacht how you planned it uh, organized it whether there were any surprises involved in carrying it out
0: certainly so it is a uh, it's a complicated operation it's a it's a complicated investigation that goes into Um, into obtaining the authority to effect a seizure. Um, That's the same if if you're doing something domestically um, here in in the United States, or as in this case, you are trying to both uh, obtain a domestic seizure warrant from a uh, a magistrate judge sitting in the United States, in this case, in the District of Columbia, uh, and then to transmit it and have it effected in an international setting. The things that go into that are are, uh, first tremendous effort by um, the agents assigned to investigate the the finances uh, and the ownership of, in this case, the particular vessel. Tremendous efforts on behalf of the U.S. Attorney's Office and the District of Columbia uh, and the attorneys there to also um, obtain the same end. Uh, And then after having developed probable cause to, to demonstrate that the Yacht was, in fact, the proceeds of sanctions evasion, uh, as well as an asset involved in money laundering transactions, Um, the mechanics get even more complicated. So in this case, uh, this was a a vessel that happened to be in a friendly port. Um, The Spanish authorities have been for years uh, particularly adept in the investigation uh, and, uh, and in asset seizures and freezing in the area of uh, of Russian organized crime in particular. Um, so we knew that we had a, um, a good partner to work with in Spain um, and we were in in some ways lucky that the, the vessel was sitting where it was. Once we had the the warrant in place, the 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 efforts then become one to physically seize the, the boat. In this case, um, as as has been reported and I think photographed, um also to execute a, a search warrant so we work with foreign partners uh, to make that request it requires coordination with our foreign partners it requires um that the foreign law be largely in line with what the u.s law is um, it happens to be the case that uh in the the wake of the most recent russian aggression in um in ukraine foreign laws have have become more and more in alignment with, and sometimes have gone even further than um, the sanctions regime that's in, in place in the United States. Um, so that uh, that was a hurdle that, that we were able to overcome in this case. Uh, we had FBI agents and HSI agents who were familiar with the case, familiar with um, with the investigation on site uh, in, in short order, uh, in order to assist with the search uh, and assist with the seizure. And now going forward, uh, it is our obligation to to maintain the the yacht in this case uh, and to keep it in in good order to go through the forfeiture proceeding. Um, That is not a short proceeding. It is civil litigation in many cases. Um, In some instances, uh, assets like the yacht may become uh, forfeitable through a criminal uh, case. Uh, which remains a possibility in in this instance. Uh, but it's a, a time consuming process. So there will be more um, more to come with respect to this yacht before uh, the United States can, can fully and finally divest Mr. Bexelberg of his
1: interest in it. I can see a TV series here called Oligarch Busters, but I'm gonna leave that for another time. Let me ask you uh, the obvious question. Why um, Victor Vexelberg and his yacht as opposed to other uh, yacht-owning billionaires? Is it simply the, the the fact that this was one that was in a port where you could operate easily, or was there a particular reason to be going after Vexelberg?
0: So the uh, I'll answer in two ways. I think one is why why go after Victor Vexelberg Victor at all, uh, and the second uh, with respect to this particular property. Um, the notion behind the task force is really to take any any action possible, um, regardless of the crime uh, available to be charged, regardless of the theory of forfeiture available to be uh, to be pursued. Um, against anybody who is on the OFAC SDN list. It is, um, uh, as I've said elsewhere, an effort to disrupt, dismantle, displace um, uh, and to discomfort the people who are historically um, supporters of, facilitators of uh, and enablers of the Putin regime. This yacht happened to be in Spain, as I, as I said, which is um, a friendly Uh, a friendly jurisdiction. That's not always the case. Uh, And as I mentioned, even in in countries that are cooperative and and are fully supportive of our efforts, it's not always the case that the uh, the relevant laws in that country mirror sufficiently the laws in the United States uh, to allow us to pursue this kind of international collaboration. In some instances, we may not be able to seek civil forfeiture um, or to execute on a a request that is leading towards civil forfeiture um, in a jurisdiction that doesn't recognize that uh, as a as a potential law enforcement tool. So you are uh, you're correct that there is some serendipity uh, in just in terms of the location and. less serendipitous there are certainly efforts uh, afoot um, publicly reported open source um, uh, authenticatable where you'll see vessels heading to jurisdictions where the kinds of advantages that we had in in spain don't uh, don't exist in quite the same format Um, that isn't to say that we don't have tools to um, to bring to bear in those jurisdictions as well but it is the case that uh, our partners in Spain were instrumental in making this a, um, a quick and efficient action.
1: Let me ask you a question that's posed by one of our audience members, uh, Susan uh, Vantine from Mexico. And she asks, if the forfeiture uh, can be uh, obtained with this vessel, uh, can the proceeds of its sale go to help Ukraine? It's a good question. What's the answer to that? It it is a great question.
0: Um, And at a broad level, funds that go into uh, into forfeiture once we've fully and finally liquidated an asset are um, are to be used and can be used um, at the discretion of the attorney general, subject to um, particular sorts of regulations that um, that that control and put limits on um, exactly where those funds can go. But the biggest, um, and and in my mind, the the primary reason for having forfeiture is for victim restitution. Um, So I wouldn't rule out the the possibility that that may ultimately be exactly how um, some portion of these funds are used.
1: And and I'm curious, you mentioned that some yachts are sailing toward uh, what for oligarchs, I gather are safe harbors. Are you um, seeking ways to to make those uh, assets, yachts or whatever it, it may may be, uh, vulnerable to to seizure by intervening with those governments by seeking new legal authorities? How are you handling that problem of flight uh, money flying to places that are even harder to reach?
0: So um, different assets. Uh, obviously throw up different kinds of of problems in that respect. Um, We're certainly working with international partners around the world uh, to identify assets that belong to sanctioned individuals. We are also um, actively assisting other jurisdictions who have their own sanctions regimes to learn of assets that are in their uh, in their jurisdictions and to make it possible for um, our foreign partners to take their own action under their own laws as well. And the task force uh, certainly considers it a win if, uh, if and when we can provide exactly that kind of information as well. To execute on our own um, our own laws and in other jurisdictions, as I say, it certainly helps to have um, to have some concurrence in what the underlying laws are. But um, even short of that, the efforts to obtain information are uh, are various, and and really the opportunities to obtain information and to take to take action um, is available even in jurisdictions that aren't exactly in in line with U.S. Um, sanctions regime. So, for example, with respect to um, to yachts, um, we may well be reaching out to um, insurance companies, cooperative insurance companies. Um, cooperative jurisdictions where these boats are flagged to discuss deflagging vessels, to discuss pulling the insurance for vessels. It makes them effectively um, port bound. It it takes them out of circulation. And in in some cases, that may be sufficient to achieve um, short-term ends of the the task force. Different assets, as I say, present different sorts of challenges, but but the tools that, that we bring to bear aren't simply um, big, overt searches and, and seizures. There are more subtle and, and sometimes fairly creative things that, uh, that US prosecutors can, can come up with.
1: One thing that I, I'm sure our viewers would be interested in is whether Russian oligarchs uh, who you're pursuing are trying to hide their assets through use of cryptocurrencies. And if that's so, and I'm curious whether you have evidence that that's so, are there ways for the Justice Department and your your task force to pursue that? I remember the case of the Russian ransomware hackers who took ransom in cryptocurrency and poof, uh, that cryptocurrency account was identified and and the money suddenly wasn't there. Do you have similar, um, let me ask the first question, is cryptocurrency being used? To hide assets, and second, if it is, can you go after it? Um, it it's
0: certainly on the radar of what we're looking at. Uh, there are there are technological and structural reasons why I think it's unlikely that you'll see billions of dollars from a single oligarch moving through um, cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, I wouldn't expect that
1: kind of of um, activity. And, and, um, and why not? Just just before you, why wouldn't they? Seek to move billions through cryptocurrencies. Are the, are the markets just not big or liquid enough to handle that?
0: Part of it, I think, is a market liquidity issue. Part of it, I think, is uh, uh, essentially the the time, the 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 cost-benefit analysis of other methods of laundering makes it cheaper and and probably more successful. Um, and probably more successful. In a way that gets at the second half of your your question, which is what are the tools and what are, what uh, what can we do in the event that illicit money moves through the cryptocurrency system or, or on the blockchain? Um, and the the fact is that there are aspects of the blockchain and aspects of cryptocurrency that are attractive to um, to money launderers generally, um, to to fraudsters who are are trying to obtain the payments from ransomware, for example, the attractive aspects tend to be the cross-border nature of it, how you can quickly move from one jurisdiction to another, um, and the pseudonymous nature of uh, of cryptocurrency. But there's some limitations on that also, and it gives us, as um, as prosecutors, as investigators, some real tools to to uh, to hand to identify. Um, the source, the origin, the ownership of, um, of cryptocurrency and, and um, problematic wallets. So, for example, over the, the certainly the last several years, um, our friends at the FBI, at Homeland Security, at the IRS Criminal Investigations uh, uh, Agency have become real experts in tracing movement across the blockchain. And you've seen that in in a number of cases and a number of of seizures, both in the ransomware uh, context, but also in things like uh, the movement of funds from uh, darknet marketplaces, even years down the the line. Um, Pseudonymous movement of money is not anonymous movement of money. Uh, And we do have, have tools to unwind who is behind particular transactions where the currency came from, and where it sits today. Uh,
1: fascinating. Um, so I, I want to ask you about decisions not to pursue certain oligarchs. One uh, especially well-known figure who's been reported to be close to Putin for many years is Roman Abramovich. Uh, and so far as I know, he has not uh, been pursued in this in this latest round. I'm speculating that that's because he has been uh, helping to facilitate uh, peace discussions between Ukraine and Russia. Am I right about that? And more generally, are you finding that some oligarchs, like people who are pursued in any criminal investigation, are flipping, are trying to come over and tell you things or be helpful uh, to the United States in ways that would make them less a target of your investigation?
0: Um, So, uh, I won't comment on Mr. Abramovich's particular situation, although you are correct, he is not sanctioned in the United States. He is sanctioned in the um, United Kingdom and in the European Union, uh, and we are closely partnered with both of those jurisdictions um, in, in investigating the people who are on the United States sanctions list. And facilitating investigation of people who are on their sanctions list as well. Um, it has been, uh, I think, publicly reported in, in uh, a couple of instances, and uh, and I think the, the the drumbeat of this is increasing in um, in rapidity. That we're seeing public statements by people who are listed on uh, on OFAC's list. Um, Uh, people who may expect to be listed on OFAC's list, um, distancing themselves from the Putin regime, from the brutality of this war and the illegality of this war, um, and posturing uh, themselves in a way that may appear uh, to suggest that they do want to assist. Um, In some instances, I I think the, uh, the realistic probability of of that being a sincere overture is low. Um, In some instances, I think the the question is really, what do you want to actually do? What do you actually want to say? Um, Standing up in in the press and saying that you condemn a war that is so easily condemnable, in my mind is too little, too late. If you want to
1: come and assist, then um, they know where to find me. So that's fascinating. So you're seeking, much as any prosecutor would, real cooperation before you remove a name from your target list, if I understand you.
0: So the decision to list or delist um, anybody is outside of the Department of Justice. Um, That's
1: a decision
0: by the the Treasury Department. It's a decision by the the state or Commerce Department, um, as it it may be. but as I say, we are interested in bringing every tool to bear. Um, I'm interested in um, in making the most impact uh, available. I'm interested in charging the most impactful cases and in inflicting the appropriate degree of punishment to the people who are on this list and the people who have um, facilitated this uh, this regime in, in Russia for decades. Uh, I will not rule out the, the possibility that um, a person may come in with deep wells of information uh, regarding the location of assets belonging to um, any number of oligarchs, any number of, uh, of Kremlin insiders. Uh, and I'll keep my options open with respect to how we deal with that uh, to bring the biggest impact possible.
1: I want to ask another uh, question from one of our uh, audience members. Karen McIsaac from North Carolina asks, do these wealthy people really have an impact on Putin's decisions, or are they just pawns for hiding his wealth? And I'd add to her good question what the goal of these sanctions is, that many experts that we talk to say that the oligarch's ability to influence Putin these days is Slim to none. So the, the question is, what real effect will these sanctions have on what matters, which is Russian decision making?
0: It's a a fantastic question, um, and really the 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 question of what the what the goal is is one that we keep in mind every day uh, as we're we're rolling out the efforts of the task force. There are a couple of different categories uh, of targets, I think, and I think it's important to Um, to think about the possibilities of success and what defines success um, according to each one of those categories. So let me offer three um, here. The the first is sanctions on what I'll call economically um, vital or or economically systemic firms um, and, uh, and government agencies in Russia. So sanctions on the central bank or um, uh, holdings of the central bank abroad. Those have um, real systemic, immediate impact, as as we've seen. And notwithstanding the ability to um, to tinker with the, the value of the ruble relative to other currencies, the long term effects, the short term effects of, of those actions on the Russian economy are, I think, undeniable. Um, that's a, a question of of slowing the, um, the ability and over time lessening the ability of the Russian war machine um, that's category one category two moves into to a group of individuals who I think are not the um, the group who grab the headlines uh, so to speak with, with the most sort of ostentatious uh, um, property. But they're insiders, Um, they're they're military personnel, um, state security service personnel, Duma members, for example. They're not uh, they don't own yachts, they don't own soccer clubs, um, but they are people who are closer to the the regime. And to the extent that we can affect any kind of deterrence, um, if we can uh, affect uh, consternation, dissension uh, among that rank, that should count as a as success as well. That may be harder to find those people's assets and maybe harder to um, to, to pursue those cases just given the less public nature of the lives they lead. lead. But, um, uh, but make no mistake, that's part of what the, the effort is both within the, the Department of Justice and uh, at, at Treasury. And then the last one that I'll mention is the the, um, the the flashiest set, um, and in in that set, I think uh, the questioner is right in their um, in, in the, the premise of the question. the The version of um, oligarchy with with respect to that set of people is not one that um, that tracks um, the notion that they themselves necessarily wield power in, in Russia. Um, there are, however, different kinds of, uh, of oligarchies. Uh, and in this case, what we're talking about is a set of people who, one, provide money to the state when it's necessary two, provide um, propaganda and the machinery for propaganda when it's necessary and when it's directed and um, uh, and provide public support for for the regime. With respect to this, this set, in part, it slows down uh, to sanction them, slows down um, the uh, the ability of the state to finance itself or propaganda machines to, to roll out. That would count as success uh, to the extent that we can take action there. But then the other way to consider this and the way that I think the department often considers it is through the lens of a prosecutor. With respect to that third set of people, what prosecutors do is deter and they punish. And that's the, the notion that we take when we look at the people who have facilitated and been cheerleaders for this regime for decades.
1: So there we have it, Deter and Punish, uh, targeting the oligarchs, fascinating discussion. I wanna thank you, Andrew Adams, for joining us. Uh, hope you'll come back and tell us more about the investigation as it, as it continues.